my kid flushed, uh, tried to flush our iPod or iPad mini down the toilet this morning. No, Sean, I'm so sorry. Happy Halloween. Coming to you from the heart of Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village, this is Academical, the official podcast of the Virginia Policy Review. The Virginia Policy Review is an independent organization staffed by students at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia with a mission to publish work that will impact the wider policy debate. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Academical. Welcome in. My name is Sean Belowski, and I'm a second-year MPP student. We are releasing this episode on Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020, a consequential date for a few reasons. First, it is my wedding anniversary, so happy anniversary, Alex. Second, there is a pretty big election today, and while we're not talking directly about the election, we are talking about public policy issues and questions that will need to be answered in the years to come. We're still in the middle of a pandemic. The healthcare fight lives on, and we are going to touch on these topics first with our co-host, Audrey McClurg. And Audrey is a second-year accelerated MPP student, and she has focused her studies on health policy. She interned with the Institute for Medicaid Innovation this summer, and she's someone who I've learned a lot from in this program. And I think, like a lot of the Batten Accelerated students, I think Audrey's perspective is wise beyond her years. And so I'm excited for you all to meet Audrey. Then we will talk with one of Audrey's professors. Uh, Adam Levy is an assistant professor for public policy and economics here at the Batten School, and he focuses his research on health economics and social welfare programs. Recently, he and a team of researchers released a paper around the issue of work requirements in SNAP or food stamp benefits. And so Audrey and I had a chance to catch up with Professor Levy about that, his background background and then his thoughts on how COVID will impact these social welfare programs moving forward. I, I really learned a lot in these conversations and, and my hope is that you will too. So so let's get to it and let's meet Audrey. So Audrey, uh, I guess this podcast will come out on election day, November 3rd. And so how are you feeling? Oh, great. No, um, <laughs> I don't even know. Anxious, tired, almost feels like there's too much going on like outside of the election to even think about it, but you also can't not think about it. Right. One of those little brain worms is just like always kind of working back there. I don't even know what, like a week from now, like what I have no idea. Um, and also too, I mean, we're still going to be in the middle of a pandemic. And so I, I mean, it's just um, who knows, but at least we'll have some sort of clarity about, you know, maybe what the next six months will look like. I mean, hopefully. That's assuming we actually know the results with any degree of certainty. That would be a nightmare. That would be a nightmare. But let, let's, um, so let's put that a little bit on the back burner. Um, you made your way to UVA from Colorado. So first, um, just curious, you know, what, what brought you all the way across the country to go to UVA? Yeah, it's a good question. I've, I've been asked that question a lot. I don't know if I've ever given a really satisfactory answer. Um, and partially because it was kind of a gut feeling. I knew coming out of high school, I wanted to go somewhere else. I wanted to see a different part of the country. Um, I applied to 17 schools, in all honesty. So I clearly had no idea what I wanted. Um, but UVA, it's a good, it's not too big, but there's also enough people here. There's stuff going on. The academics are good, but we like to have fun. The sports are good, but it's not all about sports. We're close to DC, but we still have a traditional college campus. So it kind of feels like it's a happy medium between a lot of the things that I was considering. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was a, it was a gut feeling. I didn't have any like one shining reason that I ended up here. Did you know you wanted to do Batten when you when you came here or did was that something that you decided after you arrived? So I was actually a bio major when I first came to UVA. I, I was intrigued by Batten. I remember going to an information session. Um, but at that point, I really thought that I wanted to be more on the science side, and I thought maybe politics is more just like a hobby for me. Um, and clearly some things have changed, but yeah, no, I came in here thinking I was going to be like biology or neuroscience major. Well, so I guess that kind of explains your, your healthcare interest. Um, because in, in this summer you, you interned at the Institute for Medicaid Innovation. And so I, I guess that's, uh, kind of always been in the back of your mind. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, definitely. I think kind of what happened is I came to UVA thinking biology, thinking health. I really am interested in medicine and the science. And I really, especially a lot of the research that's being done there. Um, but I also have always really loved politics. I've been a very political person my whole life. Um, 
And at some point I started taking classes and I realized what I like about biology was the human side of biology. I was interested in the social determinants of health and all of the other things that go into how a person lives physically in the world. Um, and that kind of led me to public health. So my undergrad major was global public health. And I also minored in bioethics and that kind of reintroduced me to the world of health policy. And then when I was thinking about potentially doing a graduate degree, I was torn between an MPH and an MPP initially. I ended up going MPP because I thought it would give me a little bit more range. And also I really wanted those analytical research skills so that I can kind of take the, the biology research and the health stuff that I'm interested in and translate it effectively into the world of policy. And so that's kind of how I ended up where I am. So given, given that interest into those areas of study, uh, I'm kind of just curious. Um, so how, how do you, how have you viewed the, you know, what's gone on since March, you know, just given the, those, um, your interests and in, in what you've studied, I mean, I would imagine you might look at this a little bit differently than, than most folks. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely have been taking it very seriously. I think perhaps more than a lot of people my age. Um, and it's interesting too, because I can vividly remember sitting in a public health class like three years ago, talking about the fact that we know there's a pandemic coming. We know something is coming. We're due for one. There's, you know, epidemiologists for years have said all these things are going to happen. Um, and so when it did happen, it was just interesting to watch how everybody reacted to it. Um, but yeah, I have been disappointed with the national reaction, with the international reaction, to be honest. Um, been disappointed with our government in terms of responding to the pandemic and taking it seriously initially. Um, and also just, I, I, it's hard because a little bit of cursive knowledge of I know that I need to take these things super seriously because I understand a little bit more about how viruses work. And you know, there's a really low mortality rate, but I understand that that doesn't necessarily mean anything. And of course, the people who have pre-existing conditions are more vulnerable. That's always true. That's true with every disease. Um, and so it's a little bit of personal knowledge sometimes trying to explain to people why they should care, because I feel like I have more of that background to tell me that. Um, but it's been, it's been a wild ride. Yeah, no, I mean, no, it's, uh, it really, had, and I, I'm, I'm with you, you know, the, the disappointment is, um, and I, I think at a lot of levels too, and, and just the inability to actually um, think a few steps ahead. And, and, you know, especially, I mean, this is from a selfish perspective, but, you know, if in March we had been thinking about how do you get kids back to school safely in the fall, then, you know, um, but everyone, and understandably is trying to put out the fires that are all around them and that are, you know, right in front of their face. And you understand that, but still, um, you know, being able, if you have that infrastructure in place and you have a plan, then it allows you more flexibility and to kind of uh, be able to do those things. But well, it's so frustrating that we kind of did have a plan. There are things that we knew you should do when there's a pandemic and when we have viruses that are going crazy and we just didn't do a lot of those things. Um, and I think, you know, part of it's that we've been really defunding public health for a long time because the problem with public health is it's one of the situations where no, no news is generally good news. When everything's going well in the public health world, you don't hear about it because people are healthy. If you don't hear about it, it doesn't get funded. And then we end up, with 2020, where our whole infrastructure is just shot because nobody's been investing in it. And then all of a sudden you need it and we don't have the capacity anymore. It, well, and now, and this kind of brings us to our conversation with uh, Professor Adam Levy, who I know is one of one of your professors for uh, an economics of social insur insurance and welfare programs class. And, you know, th there are some really um, consequential decisions that need to be made, I think, from a, from a policy standpoint. Professor Levy is, is um, you know, done a lot of research in particular around this, um, around work requirements. And, you know, with, with the on, onset of the pandemic, they, they um, lifted some of those work requirements for some social welfare programs like SNAP, which is uh, the food stamp program uh, that what it used to be known as. There are a lot of questions about when to re reinstate those. And they, they did some, re or he did, and a group of folks did some research around that. And this is something that, that he really focuses on. And it, it's, you know, some really, you know, the, these policy decisions aren't done. There's still a lot, a lot of decisions that need to be made as, as we try to try to come out of this thing. Yeah, my, my applied policy project is with the National Association of Medicaid Directors. And what I'm doing with them is they're kind of thinking, you know, the system has been dismantled so much because of COVID and because of funding issues and all of that. And as we come out of COVID, hopefully, eventually, we're going to have to rebuild it. And since we're rebuilding, let's rebuild it better. 
Um, and so I'm focusing particularly on racial disparities in Medicaid access. And you know, it's something that's been at the forefront of the national conversation a little bit. And as we rebuild these programs, as we're thinking about these policy changes that you're talking about, things like work requirements, kind of having an eye to these other issues that we care about um, and hopefully building a better system when we do come out of this. Well, I, you know, I really enjoyed the conversation we had with, with Professor Levy. And uh, one thing to, to note, um, you know, he mentions a, a few things. We're actually going to link in the show notes to, a, to his paper and some other studies kind of around these topics. And so if folks want to read, um, you can check out the show notes. But um, Audrey, thanks so much for doing this. And, um, you know, here's our conversation with Professor Adam Levy. If you've listened to a couple episodes before, I think you might know, we, we actually start all of these episodes with our guests with just a very uh, simple, but I think I've come to realize that it's a loaded question, you know, given everything that's gone on with the pandemic, with, um, you know, we have an election, this episode will come out the day before, a pretty consequential election. Just how are you feeling? Uh, well, I mean, certainly in terms of in terms of COVID, I feel very fortunate, you know, given that I've got this great job and the ability to uh, teach and do research, uh, certainly compared to so many people, you know, I've been very, very lucky. Um, but like so many people, I'm also, you know, really upset by all of the racial injustice and all of the issues of you know, really not taking the pandemic head on the way we, we should. So in that way, I'm, you know, not feeling very good as I, as I think many others are as well. I'm sure you see that students are, are kind of the struggles that students have and you're experiencing that. But I think something that we don't appreciate as students is just the struggle that it's been for professors and just that the challenge is there. And I'm wondering if you can reflect on that and maybe, you know, kind of educate Audrey and me a little bit, you know, what, what's, what's it like on, on the other side of the, on the other side of the zoom camera, I guess. For us, like being in person is really helpful to be able to gauge how things are going and how we're connecting uh, with with students and you know having the opportunities for you know little chats before or after class as well to kind of really get a sense of how classes are going, what people are dealing with, you know all of that is now missed. And so I think that having more opportunities, you know, to to do that in those little breaks before Zoom classes start, things like that, that's helpful, but there's really no replacing it. And so I think that for for me has been a you know a challenge is just trying to check in with with students and see how people are handling things. Um, and I think also, you know, over Zoom, sometimes people aren't understandably as willing to perhaps share things or be as forthcoming. You know, all of our Zoom sessions are recorded. I think that also has an effect on, you know, what people say or don't say. Um, so that's, I think that's been the biggest challenge just in terms of connecting with the students um, is, is not having that in-person, more private conversation. I'm curious, if I remember right, you did not teach last semester. Um, and so a lot of us kind of got that weird semester as an introduction to Zoom and got the chance to kind of feel things out maybe a little bit more low pressure since we'd already had half the semester. What was it like for you having to jump in completely head first this year? Challenging. I mean, it, it, the benefit is, as you know, from our class, we've only got 18 students in it. So compared to somebody teaching a course that's, you know, maybe 60 students, uh, it's a lot easier. You can at least kind of see everybody and it feels a little more connected. I'm still working through technical difficulties and, you know, a lot of practice on family members and, you know, other people, how to do things like breakout rooms and have a, have an effective learning experience, um, even if it's, if it's highly imperfect. So there was just, I think, a lot more homework up front on that front. So before we kind of jump into to some of your work and your research, I wanted to touch a little bit on your background. And you, you graduated from Princeton undergrad in 05 with a public policy degree, got a master's in health economics from the University of York in uh, the UK the next year. Then you worked with um, the IMF and uh, the World Bank. And so I'm curious just uh, what motivated those moves for you and, and what did you really take from, from those experiences? Yeah, so it's definitely a sort of a non-traditional path compared to, I think, a lot of people who end up in academia doing research. Uh, for me, I was always interested in studying these big 
picture societal problems and questions. And as an undergrad, I thought public policy was a good approach to, to do that. I then got to the end of my time and realized I really need to specialize in some area in order to really know what I'm talking about. And I thought that economics was a really good discipline to let me do that because of the toolkit it provides. So I, I became interested in a lot of questions that are really about how do you allocate resources, things like healthcare, really complicated, tough, challenging questions that involve a lot of trade-offs. And I think the economic toolkit provided you know, a good lens to, to evaluate that. So after undergrad, I realized you know, I needed to do a bit more investing in, in that um, so that I could be more uh, competitive, whether I decided to go on to academia um, or whether, you know, kind of working more in think tanks or more in the policy sphere. Um, and so that kind of was what led me to doing the one-year master's program in England and then um, realizing I wanted to, to get a bit more kind of real-world experience um, and decide, do I want to try to become an academic in which your career is mainly based on research? Uh, do I want to be more kind of connected to what's going on in, say, the real world? And then those those few years at the IMF and World Bank kind of gave me that that chance. And I think what I realized is ultimately I'd like to be able to do both. And so that's partly why I went to get a PhD in a professional school. Um, and so there was always a focus on healthcare um, coming out of the Wharton Healthcare Program, but also on kind of rigorous economics training. So that's you know that's kind of what led me to uh start out kind of very broad and then get sort of narrower later on which is often the reverse of how things go what led you from those more applied jobs in the imf and the world bank to going back to teaching at uva yeah i i realized i liked doing research uh a lot more than i liked communicating it i think both is really important um but I would like to be able to kind of mainly do the studies that I was reading or that we were kind of communicating, you know, evidence and policy recommendations to various government partners. And so I realized that in order to do that, I needed to have the, have a PhD. So that was really the motivation. So now I kind of want to turn a little bit to, to your research and your work and, and um, you know, you recently had a paper come out and, um, and Batten kind of released a little Q&A with you about your work around work requirements and SNAP. And, and this is something that's particularly important now because in the wake of, of the pandemic, um, you know, in response to that, those work requirements for SNAP were waived. And now the debate is whether or not, whether and when to reinstate those work requirements. And so, you know, you all looked at, and please correct any of these details that, that I may get wrong, um, but you basically looked at data in Virginia um, from the Great Recession in 2008, where they suspended the work requirements, and then you were able to track, um, track that data through October of 2013 when they reinstated the work requirements, and then figured out what the impact was just based on, based on that experience, and so, um, or that event, I guess I should say, and Assuming I got all that right, what what, uh, what did you guys learn? So what we what we found was that when the work requirements were reinstated after the Great Recession, you had a lot of people who had been on SNAP for several years, and then suddenly had to meet these requirements in order to continue getting benefits. And what we found was that uh, the requirements largely reduced the number of people on SNAP without having any large meaningful effects on employment. So just to kind of take a step back for a minute, the, the goal of these requirements uh, from a policy perspective is often to kind of increase economic self-sufficiency, uh, at least in the long run, and to get people involved in the labor force. So the fact that we saw a reduction in people on SNAP wasn't necessarily by itself a problem, but the fact we didn't see any increase in employment coupled with it um, suggested that the policy was not meeting that important objective. We then also looked at who was exactly was leaving SNAP as a result of the work requirements. And what we found was that uh, it was disproportionately people who were homeless and people who had very low incomes when they applied for SNAP. So we kind of think of those groups as being very economically vulnerable, you know, facing a lot of other hurdles, 
Um, you know, the homeless may not have a permanent mailing address. So facing a lot of other structural barriers to employment. Um, and the fact that those were the people who are disproportionately exiting the program provides further evidence that right, this is a policy that is really not working, uh, no pun intended, as, as it was meant to. And I'm just kind of curious, maybe taking off your very neutral academic professor hat just for a second, um, to what degree do you think the work requirement policies that we've seen, and I'm thinking especially Medicaid, but other programs as well, to what degree do you think they're really the result of economic analysis and economics-based policy, or do you think they're more political tools? Um, and I guess the follow-up there is, do you think that's going to change or the conversation will change with potentially a different administration? So I think that until fairly recently, and ours is not the only study on this topic, so we, we see ours as, as, uh, as contributing to uh, more research on this, but I would say we didn't have great information. We had a lot of um, a lot of background knowledge that you know a lot of people were already meeting work requirements, or this already already applies to just kind of a small segment of the populations on, say, SNAP. Um, but I think that until the last several years, you know, when a number of these studies have come out. Um, we didn't really understand that that the effects were kind of limited in terms of employment and as so large as what we're finding in terms of the participation front. Um, you know, these have been a around since the 96 so-called welfare reform. Uh, and I think a lot of data limitations have really just prevented researchers from rigorously evaluating them. And so we were able to, and others have been able to as well, by linking different administrative data sets and kind of using you know, the latest tools in regression analysis in order to, to uncover these causal effects. Um, but I'm hopeful that, you know, this is providing evidence to kind of future policymakers, future administrations uh, to think about, you know, what you would do when, uh, when devising these policies. Um, I will say also that there's, we did find some evidence that about 15% of uh, SNAP recipients did increase their employment. Um, and that happened kind of right in the vicinity of the minimum wage threshold. So there might be some suggestive evidence that, you know, some people respond, but it's a minority of people. Um, in terms of the, the Medicaid work requirements, you know, the best evidence that we have, um, comes from Arkansas, which was the only uh, state to have actually implemented them as part of the uh, the eleven they're called eleven fifteen waivers um, through the Medicaid program, and they were only in place for a few months. And what we saw was just massive disenrollment. People didn't know they had to comply with them. I think that you know it's hard to to generalize. Um, to other programs, especially when, you know, the populations are a bit different, um, exactly what you have to do to meet the work requirements can differ. But collectively, you know, I would, I read this evidence as, as saying that these policies are not very effective. Um, you know, you could think about maybe redesigning them in some way, um, maybe adjusting, you know, exactly what is needed to uh, to kind of meet them, re facing the, you know, recognizing the barriers that people are facing. Um, we don't have any data on that part yet, but collectively, you know, the evidence does not uh, provide a strong, you know, support for, for these policies. You know, I, I'm kind of curious in your experience, the work requirement theory, when you explain it, kind of makes a little bit of sense, right? I, I, you can kind of follow the logic of it. But in your experience, when the evidence kind of flies in the face of this, like, you know, well-crafted theory, how willing are policymakers to, to re-examine those, those priors, um, you know, when confronted with, with evidence such as that? And, and like you mentioned in Arkansas with those work requirements, I mean, how, um, how stubborn, I guess, are policymakers, um, you know, when, you know, trying to reevaluate things? That, that's a big question. Um, I, strikes me that, you know, policy is slow to react generally to, to new evidence sometimes. I think that there are, you know, sometimes really important ways in which policymakers do take on 
uh, you know, empirical evidence. You know, I was thinking about, say, the uh, uh, the effort to repeal the ACA, and the CBO comes out with the number of the number of people are going to lose on insurance coverage, and that really changes the debate. So, I think that sometimes that can have such a large effect. I am not in any way saying that our study is is kind of in that uh, in that space, but. I think that kind of through a mountain of of research over time, you know, you do kind of accumulate this knowledge that uh, for economists, we're now saying, okay, we, we feel like we've got much better evidence on this. Uh, people in the program may already know this, um, but I think hopefully, you know, over time, it, it does build, uh, build the evidence base. I think it's really hard too, though, in thinking about these policies when they're at the federal level, to think about changing them. So, so for example, this work requirement policy that we study in the SNAP program applies nationwide. States don't, they have very limited discretion in getting around it. And so there's opportunities to, for example, exempt certain localities where unemployment rates are particularly high. There's a limited number of uh, opportunities to exempt people at the state's discretion based on past caseloads. But in general, the states are just doing what they have to do according to the policy rules. Um, when you have instead opportunities to change some of those rules at the state level, I think that that type of, of reform is much more possible. I'm just curious, though, thinking about some of these policies at the state level, and again, I'll go back to Medicaid partially just because that's what I'm familiar with, and because it is so state-based, um, you know, the, the states that have implemented work requirements or are still trying to implement work requirements are not random. Um, you know, they, they tend to be states that were opposed to Medicaid expansion, and there's some really good evidence out of Georgetown that the work requirements that are there will disproportionately affect Black Americans. And I'm curious as to how much those considerations play into the economics. I guess, where does the politics and the economics kind of play out in those decisions? Do you mean in, in terms of like uh, the decisions of to, to implement, like why certain states choose to and things like that? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, it's, you're right on that you, you often can't disentangle the economics from the politics, right? Like looking at, looking at the states, for example, that have chosen not to expand Medicaid, right? I think we're at 13. They're primarily in the South, right? Um, and, you know, that I think is not random. Uh, a lot of this, you know, the, the work requirements through Medicaid have been perhaps a bit more spread out, sometimes like in Virginia, which is has indefinitely paused them, but they were tied to the expansion. So they were more of like a bipartisan compromise, but I would say that's quite rare. And instead, it's much more, you know, governors that have an interest in these type of, you know, 1996 welfare reform type policies um, in terms of having very stringent rules on accessing the program. In terms of what we learned from it, you know, that all depends on kind of, I think, the, the design of the research study. And if you could randomly assign work requirements within states, then you'd be able to get an answer at least that is, you know, relevant to that state. But if you are comparing outcomes of states that haven't expanded and those that did, you know, did, then you have to, you'd have to think about those general, the generalizability issues more. Professor Levy, I'm, I'm curious, just a broad question is, as you think about, um, and as an economist, where, you know, economists are concerned with very efficiently allocating resources, um, you know, how do you think about means tested? <laughs> how do you think about means tested social welfare programs versus universal programs? And, and really, um, you know, some of the trade-offs that, that have to be made there from, a, um, you know, while you might be allocating resources more efficiently with means testing, there's still trade-offs as far as expediency, you know, ease of implementation, trust of government, you know, that, that they're, you know, providing some services. And so how, how as an economist, how, how do you think about those trade-offs when you're, when you're looking at the, at the research around these topics? Yeah. So that's a, that's a really important question of, you know, really about targeting. We want to think about because resources are limited, we want to help out people who would benefit the most from them. And that's often tied to people having very low incomes because we think that they need help. And in order to you know, give resources primarily to low-income people, we often have to right, have some cap on who gets benefits and even maybe caps on assets. Um, 
And so you kind of think about it in terms of these false positives and false negatives, to use kind of a statistical term in which uh, if you do means testing, you know, you might pick up a lot of people who, who really stand to benefit, um, but you might also miss some people depending on how you set the, the income thresholds, for example. Um, if you have things that are more universal, then, you know, you might give benefits to a lot of people who, you know, don't, quote, need them, unquote, and that might be inefficient because those benefits would have delivered more good had they been allocated to, to lower income people. But then on, and then on top of that, you've got issues of implementation, reporting standards uh, that add to the costs. So I kind of think about it very broadly in terms of, in terms of those, uh, those trade-offs. But in terms of, I think in terms of the evidence, you know, this is also where economists have had, had contributions, uh, particularly in recent years, uh, largely by linking data sources and using you know, cutting edge techniques to study what happens when you give people who, you know, might look very similar, but because of some policy quirk, some people get the benefits, some people don't. And then you can use that variation to study what happens over time. And what, what we've are now seeing is that you know, these means tested targeted programs, food stamps, Medicaid, end up paying for themselves down the road um, in terms of increased employment, better health outcomes, uh, lots of other things that policymakers might care about. And so there's really this, you know, this important need in which you've got to take the long run perspective. And so, you know, I think that um, having a universal program, we can talk about, if you'd like, kind of universal programs for different things, you know, there's, there's a real trade off there, um, instead of using your limited resources to really target. So in terms of the universal programs, you know, you could think about healthcare as being one that one thing that's really important. Uh, I'm not sure if you're also talking about universal programs like universal basic income. Well, yeah, I mean, just just in general, because I, I especially like with COVID, right, where the, this debate was, do you just send out cash to everyone, or or are you just, um, you know, are you going to target and figure out who actually needs it? And so, um, and you know, with the the trade off there, right, of just getting pe- getting money out, and you, and yeah, you might overshoot, you might give it to some people who didn't need it. But at the same time, you're not missing anybody. And so, um, you know, the, the, the trade-offs there, are obviously, they're very real. Yeah. And, I, and that's a, you know, that's a really good example, too, in terms of, you know, in these non-normal COVID times, um, the deposits that were made right into people's bank accounts were extremely helpful, even though they were temporary one-off, you know. And it might be really different if we're doing that on a permanent basis, but in terms of uh, doing it in these really desperate times, I think that it's, it's kind of absolutely crucial to, you know, risk, as you say, overshooting a little bit so that you can make sure that you don't, that people aren't falling through the cracks because one problem with our current system, which is really this patchwork is that a lot of people, even those who are eligible still fall through the cracks. And so that would be, you know, at least for some programs, um, in particular, something like health insurance, you know, I think something where, uh, you want everybody to have some minimum level of of coverage and not have to jump through hoops in order to get it. Definitely. And kind of going in the healthcare direction, I know you've spent a lot of time studying and researching healthcare economics. In your opinion, what would need to change in our current system for a competitive private healthcare market to actually function well? Or do you think that healthcare as a good is just maybe too inherently complex for that structure to work? That's a that's a tough question. I think that well, I think there's a lot of issues. You know, one is is the the tax subsidization that we we give the employer sponsored health insurance. You know, one thing is having having an employment system that is so intricately linked to uh, healthcare and vice versa. Um, that I think is not a a good uh, design. It's just part of you know the historical accident. So, you know, moving in the direction of unlinking health insurance from employment, I think would be really important. I think one way of doing that would be to slowly think about phasing out the, uh, the tax preference for employer-sponsored insurance. But, you know, I think Obamacare has, has taken some really great steps in terms of trying to uh, improve the functioning of the private health insurance market. 
although the number of people who get insurance through those marketplaces really pales in comparison to the increases in insurance through Medicaid, for example. I think also, though, you have to think about kind of cost fundamentally, which is, um, you know, there's very low willingness to pay for insurance is, is what a lot of kind of research is pointing to. And that could be due to, you know, various different factors. Um, even when it's subsidized, a lot of people don't purchase insurance. So I think that, you know, focusing on how to bring down costs, which often is something that policymakers like to talk about in terms of reforms, but then when the final bill is passed, it's often expansions in insurance coverage, which I think is very important, but the cost cutting or not even cost cutting, but just ways of slowing the growth of healthcare costs, uh, that's the stuff that gets cut. So for example, you know, other issues much more on the, the supply side that are, are really important today are, are rising uh, rates of consolidation in healthcare markets. So hospitals, you know, um, there's more concerns about kind of the negative effects of consolidation in hospital markets, even physician markets. So um, are becoming more consolidated. A lot of times that flies under the radar of DOJ, given the size of some of those transactions. And so finding ways of trying, you know, what we're finding, what we see too, is that those consolidation uh, efforts do not result in lower prices for consumers, which they could from a standard economic perspectives, uh, but we're not seeing that. And so I think more attention should be paid to, to some of those issues. So that's kind of the, you know, there's, there's a lot of different reforms you could take, but I think getting, getting kind of costs, reducing the tax incentives, that would help to kind of allow market mechanisms to work a bit better. I, I think that's an excellent point. And um, in my prior job, I actually worked in, um, in investment banking and we did healthcare and we, we focused a lot on physician practices. And I don't think people truly understand the private equity activity, especially in the more kind of consumer driven uh, fields like dermatology, dentistry, and that that consolidation and private equity, they have one goal and it is not to save you money. And so, uh, but even in the behavioral health uh, field, you know, there's a ton of behavioral health activity um, and, and they're very small transactions. You're right. Cause there are thousands of these practices across the country. And, um, you know, that, that, that is a dynamic that is, that is only going to accelerate. And, and that's something that I, I think you're right. I, I think people just don't, um, I don't think people have any idea that it's going on. And the, the private equity point is really important and only something that, that researchers now are just starting to scratch the surface of. I mean, part of it, it comes back to this issue of researchers, at least, you know, economists need data in order to, uh, to reject hypotheses. And so, um, we've only started to see kind of more work on this topic. Um, but just like you say, it's certain specialties, right? Um, the, uh, the efforts to curb uh, surprise medical bills was basically killed by the private equity industry who, is, who backs kind of some of these the physicians who stand to benefit. And so I believe it was Uwe Reinhardt, who is the late um, health economist from, uh, who, who commented a lot on these issues, who said, you know, one person's waste is another person's revenue in the U.S. healthcare system. And so that's what makes reforms to some of this so challenging is there's just so many different players here that stand to gain by trying to get a piece of the pie. And just thinking, you know, all those issues you just mentioned, rising frustration, costs, all of that if those reforms are too complicated, kind of the other proposal that's been floated is a public option. Um, and this has come in the form of a Medicare for all, which has been talked a lot about. I know there's different versions of that potential proposal. Um, also kind of a private top up type model or Medicaid for all type system. Um, he's laughing because we talked about this in class two weeks ago. But what do you think are the pros and cons of those ideas compared to the system that we already have? Or do you think there'll ever be a reality? Yeah, I, I think that they're certainly gaining a lot more traction, you know, that uh, certainly, right, um, you know, the ideas of, of Medicare for all, which, you know, by itself is, is not really well defined, but then you can kind of, as, as you were saying, kind of unpack what people mean by that, right? But that was not something that was really mainstream within the Democratic Party until, you know, somewhat recently. But uh, yeah, you've got, you know, Biden talking about expanding a public option. That would be kind of his big 
effort to kind of shore up the ACA and kind of further move in that direction. I think that eventually we're going to have to do something like that because I don't think the current system is sustainable. It's, it, you know, we, we pay too much and we, we get too little. And it's not to say that, that nobody is benefiting, certainly for some services. If you get sick, you want to be treated in the U S because, you know, we have the best access. Um, but it's just, I think, highly inefficient when we think about how those resources are distributed. And so when I think about kind of a Medicare for all, if it were about extend, extending the current Medicare program, that's just uh, a really bad idea because Medicare says no to nothing. So, you know, we don't have any cost effectiveness type decision making in terms of what drugs will cover, what procedures will cover. Um, it's great access, it's great insurance, but it's, it's not something that we can think about realistically expanding to everybody if we want to be even the slightest bit fiscally responsible. So I think that you have this Medicaid for all system or something in which, you know, where either, you know, people have the option of buying into Medicaid, right? If the public option looks more like that, if, uh, or if it's kind of this automatic Medicaid kind of, which is perhaps less generous, right, than, than Medicare. Um, and then allowing people the opportunity to buy supplemental insurance, to buy, you know, enhanced services. I think that's, uh, that's a much more promising route. It would, uh, in my view, free up important resources that could be used to uh, pay for other things that probably have higher benefits at the margin than health insurance. So, you know, we were talking about SNAP a minute ago um, and other, you know, programs that are, are really think of kind of associated with the safety net. And it might be that to improve health, you know, in the long run, instead, we don't, you know, health insurance is important, but what we really need is more investments in, in safety net programs and education and housing in lots of what are sometimes called the social determinants of health. So in the long run, that's probably what's going to improve our health, um, not, you know, access to, you know, the equivalent of the iPhone 12 or whatever, but for healthcare. I'm just a little curious when you're talking about a Medicaid for all system, Medicaid as it currently stands is hugely variant by state, not only in terms of who's eligible, but in terms of what kinds of services you can get. I'm just curious when you're thinking about that, to what degree do you think that we should keep that state variation or if we're going to make it kind of a public option that you could potentially buy into or that everybody is automatically enrolled in, would we need to kind of nationalize and standardize that more? Yeah, I, I think that the challenge with some of the state level variation, state level variation, how you set benefits is sometimes they cannot be so generous, right? And so, you know, the I, I think for something like health insurance, there are probably a lot of gains from having more of a standardized federal program. I think that you know, like uh, like Medicaid, right? Unemployment insurance is something that varies at the state level, and we see some states where you might only get 13 weeks of unemployment insurance in normal times at a pretty low replacement rate. And so I think that is, is really not the type of system we want if we think, you know, we want to have this really as the, the floor, right? Um, so the, the other side of that coin is, well, you can better match perhaps, you know, local level preferences to, uh, you know, to, to people who live there. But uh, in terms of the benefits, but I'm not really fully convinced by some of those things. If we're if we're talking about you know having a uh, kind of a basic benefit package, in which I would think that would be pretty standard across across the country. I think the the beauty and the frustration of healthcare is just how how vast and just the all of the consequences that come along with it. And I, I don't think that uh, and you've done a lot of work around um, around a lot of these different topics. And, you know, I, I just don't think that policymakers really explain all of the impacts that our healthcare system has. And, and I think in particular, um, you know, I think something you've done some work on is, you know, people talk about the. Um, you know, the effect, the financial effect of a health event, right? And so you have to pay for that health event, but also there are lost wages that come along with that and, and that they play on kind of further further out from when the medical bills stop, stop showing up. Um, there are issues of uh, labor force efficiency. I know personally, when I was deciding to come back to school, I had to figure out healthcare. It, it, it you know, it was healthcare for me and my family. 
And, you know, how many workers out there are not leaving their job to start a small business who are, you know, staying in a job where they're, they're not happy. And, um, you know, I, I think that there, there are just so many, there are so many ways and so many, I think avenues to build coalitions around, you know, these different aspects and downstream effects. But I, I just don't know how effective, especially policymakers are at kind of, kind of drawing those lines from, I guess, in healthcare, it could be from A to B to C to D and really connecting, connecting all those dots um, that happen there in between. Yeah. I mean, as you say, I mean, there are so many kind of moving, moving parts in this, right. But I, I think that issue of the, the links between employment and health insurance is central to to our challenges, um, you know, and uh, the, sometimes it's called job lock in the uh, health insurance uh, community, um, and it's 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 real. And having you know things like the ACA can help um, to try to you know sever some of those those links, but it also is a problem because it it leads for an increasingly large part of people's compensation to be eaten up by health insurance and not by wages. And that might be good for some people, right? If you're someone who's going to use a lot of health insurance, you're kind of being subsidized at work by the people, uh, your coworkers who aren't using a lot of health insurance. If you're a firm that, that self-insures its own employees. Um, and maybe if you're not using a lot of health insurance, you would be better off if those wages were returned to you, you know, if you got that compensation in the form of wages. And so that's just kind of another reason that, you know, that, that this, this system we have, I think, is, is really inefficient. But like you say, yeah, it's like, how do you, there are so many problems. Uh, how do you think about tackling them all? You know, I, I kind of am of the view you have to do this really, you know, pretty big reform in order to make progress on this. And I think, I think a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of groups though would stand to, to lose out. And that's the challenge is like, how do you find something where, you know, some groups might lose, but could get compensated in other ways. That is the, you know, $64,000 question or whatever the term is. I have one question for you and I'm only asking because you put it to us in class. And I said, this is a lot of pressure. You asked us if you could change one thing about our current health insurance system, what would it be? So I'm asking you. So I would, I would phase out the tax subsidy for employer-sponsored insurance. It's not the most, you know, um, glamorous reform, right? This is not, uh, this is something that often puts people to sleep, but it's about a quarter of a trillion in foregone revenues, right? We're, we're essentially distorting the price of health insurance. Um, and that money could be spent, you know, much better, I think, elsewhere, particularly because the people who get the largest benefits are those people who are in high marginal tax rates and people who have very generous health insurance policies. And I think that, you know, we could have a discussion about whether those people should be in a lower marginal tax rate. But I think that uh, there are much better ways of spending that money than to give them a tax break for health insurance. Definitely. I appreciate you answering that. Kind of moving more towards looking forward, I'm just curious, you know, COVID-19 is kind of the main thing happening right now. We're all trying to figure it out. Um, and a lot of people are kind of looking at as we come out of this pandemic, a lot of our systems have been broken down and we're going to have to rebuild them. And if we're rebuilding them, we might as well rebuild them better. Um, so I'm curious, do you think that COVID will change how the U.S. tackles social welfare issues? I would hope so. <laughs> um... I'm not sure what to think these days in terms of policy uh, prognostications, but I, I would hope that this is, you know, really by unfortunately exposing so many of the, the horrible losses people have faced, right? By losing their job, losing their health insurance, maybe not qualifying for unemployment insurance because they didn't make enough money or qualifying for even things like, you know, SNAP, which is supposed to be really the, and is kind of in general, the, the main safety net that, that is this automatic stabilizer because maybe they've got assets that are too high. I mean, I would hope that we could use this opportunity to think about redesigning policies that, um, you know, better support people. And I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of concern about providing, I should say there's some concern about providing more generous benefits um, in the safety net is discouraging, right, incentives to work. 
Um, that was, I think, a really hotly debated issue that was raised with the $600 employment subsidy, for example, and the research, you know, that's come out, you, you know, many different uh, studies have found that uh, as of the end of July, we didn't see any evidence of that, you know, whether that would continue or not, if you, if you had a normal labor market, that's something we, you know, we don't know. But um, I think that there are ways of dealing with the negative uh, labor supply disincentives of some of these programs. Um, and that could be to kind of couple it with more, you know, pro-work policies like the earned income tax credit, other types of wage supports so that, you know, maybe people don't lose all of their benefits all at once, for example, right? But, and I think that a lot of research shows that, you know, those concerns, um, also people have those concerns with the Affordable Care Act in terms of the tax credits, like they haven't materialized. And so I think that, I think those are important questions to ask, but I think that, you know, policymakers, economists, you know, society all have to then kind of update our priors based on that evidence and take that into account. And so I think if anything, you know, I, I would hope that the future policy would be one that, you know, factors in, um, in a role for having an automatic stabilizer. So we don't have to rely on Congress to, to provide benefits, but rules and benefits uh, of SNAP or Medicaid or TANF automatically, you know, get tweaked so that it can bring in more people who are vulnerable and need help. Um, but who knows? That's, that's, that's my hope, at least. Might make too much sense. I don't know. <laughs> but well, Professor Levy, this has been, this has been really great. And we'll, um, we'll wrap this up with um, the question that we ask all of our guests. And that's, you know, simply what, what's a, um, or I don't know how simple it is, but what's a leadership lesson that, that you've learned uh, that you wish someone would have shared with you as either an undergraduate or graduate student? Yeah, I don't think it's simple, but I think it's a great question, especially coming from Batten. I, I think for me, one thing that, you know, that I've learned is just how important teamwork is to leadership. It's not one person from on high just saying, do this, do that. It's really working together, collaborating, and um, figuring, you know, how to design effective communication strategies, um, figuring out how to connect with the other people you're working with. So it's not just all about uh, technical skills or technical expertise, but really about, you know, the human relationships and, you know, that type of things that economists, for example, often don't focus as much on. But when you're working as a team, quickly become apparent are just crucial to the success uh, of the group. And so I think, you know, taking really mindful approaches to setting up processes and, and designs of effective communication, um, I think is, is crucial to uh, success. That'll do it for this week's episode. Thanks so much again to Professor Adam Levy and thank you to Audrey McClurg for co-hosting. Thank you as well to Ben Teese and Ben Feldman for helping put these episodes together. We will be back with another episode next week. Stay safe.